Isn't that really a blessing? Well, continuing our series on favorite Bible characters, um, I'm, I'm here today to represent David. Now, the question would be, and I'm, I'm a person who likes to answer questions, the question would be, why would David be a favorite Bible character, if he is for any of you? And personally, he is one of, one of my favorites. Well, according to 1 Samuel, he was described as Rudy and handsome. Now, I don't know how many of you know what the word Rudy means or not anymore, but, you know, nice pink cheeks. He was a healthy, healthy, healthy specimen. That's what it means. David was also multi-talented. He was accomplished with a stringed instrument, whether it was a little harp, or we're not, we don't know exactly, but apparently he could play. He wrote beautiful and moving psalms, and apparently was even a bit of a public dancer. <laughs> In addition to this, he was very brave. He drove off bears and lions when they tried to eat his father's uh, sheep. He was recommended to Saul, not just for his ability to play uh, good music, but also because he was a good warrior. And notably, single-handedly, he slew a nine-foot giant, Goliath, in single combat before a sold-out crowd. <laughs> Incredible. This was a brave man. Now, we also, as we read about David, we discover he was charismatic. He was one of those people that just drew other people to him. Um, and they were willing to follow him, even if times were a little rough and things didn't look so good. He had people who followed him out into the desert. Um, when he Later on in his life, when he had won battles, they sang praises about him. Saul has killed his thousands, David his ten thousands. Not just charismatic, but he also openly professed his love for his God, the God that ruled them all. And so, ultimately, when you look at him, he was the local boy who makes good. He's the one you read about and you said, wow. He went from being a humble shepherd to being the ruler and a notable ruler in his whole region of the world. So when you think about it, who wouldn't be impressed by David? Everyone loves a winner. Isn't that true? I mean, locally here, when LT was doing so well and so forth, I mean, the jerseys, you'd see it all and so forth. Then when things looked a little, then we started seeing other jerseys begin to appear. Everyone loves a winner. However, if we were to describe David using only his positive attributes, only those good things about him, his remarkable achievements, we would really be leaving out critical parts of David's experience and perhaps even missing the reason his story is included in our Bible. David's life wasn't only ruled by God, it was sometimes ruled by his passions, even his ego. 
For example, during the time in his life when uh, David was playing hide-and-seek with Saul, for, good, for very good reasons, um, he found himself out in the desert of uh, Peron. Exactly where that is, I'm not sure. But he was out in the desert with a bunch of his men, and as chance would have it, he and his men um, were kind of loosely watching, watching over and guarding the sheep of a rich man named Nabal from marauders. Because back then, hey, sheep's on the menu, people would grab them and run. They provided this service. It wasn't contracted for, but they were still providing some, some service here. Well, when it came time to shear the sheep, David sent a couple of his men to pick up a little protection money, so to speak, for providing this service. And what happens? His men were told to get lost. We're not going to do this. And what was David's response? Was David's response, that's okay. Hey, you know, this happens. No, no, no. His response was, guys, strap on your swords. And he was on his way to kill Nabal for being so ungrateful. This was David. Fortunately, Nabal's wife, um, Abigail, thank you. I was getting to it. It's hard to see here. Abigail intervened and with some soothing words and a couple of uh, donkeys laden with, with goods, she made the situation right. Later on with David, we have a situation where David was given specific instructions from God not to take a census. Well, David wanted to know how many fighting men he had so that if he got into a battle, he'd know how many men he could commit. And so he did it anyway. He did the census. And God was very disappointed. Um, the end result of this decision on his part, his arrogance, was that it cost 70,000 people their lives from a plague. And then there's Bathsheba. Um, Bathsheba, the beautiful wife of the faithful captain Uriah the Hittite. David saw her, he yielded to his passions, and embarked on a whole series of bad decisions that ultimately took the life of two innocent people and claimed the honor of more than that. Clearly, David was a complex, multifaceted man with wonderful talents and the faults to match them. However, I have to admit, that's not why he is one of my favorite characters. It wasn't the highs and the lows. It wasn't the, the greats and the depressions. For me, the reason he's one of my favorite characters is because David's life teaches us about the God that we serve. Even though David has another man killed in an attempt to cover up for his guilt and his shame. He's still described in both the Old Testament and the New Testament as a man after God's own heart. After David has done this thing, God selects Nathan to counsel him and to instruct him. And David, to his credit, responds with all his heart. God's response 
to David's failures wasn't uh, retribution. It was restoration. All of us here, like David, will probably fail many, many times um, to either think or do as God would have us to do. But we, like David, can know that we have a heavenly Father that desires, desires to create in us a clean heart and restore us to the joy of his love. And that's why he's a favorite of mine. Thanks. One of my favorite set of Bible characters is Mary and Martha. Martha and Mary, Mary and Martha. What do you think when you hear those two names? Do you think peas in a pod, like they're tight like this, like they think the same? No. No, you think more like the yin and the yang, the salt and the pepper, the teeter and the totter? That's, that's Mary and Martha. Very different. And I have a sister who's just barely a year younger than I. We're very close at heart, but I would dare say very different in personalities. And I look at the, the story, the main story that we find in the Bible of Mary and Martha, and I can relate to that, the dynamic duo of these two sisters who were very different in their personalities, in their ways, and in their interactions with Jesus. And I, and I think about, I bet they had some interesting times. I bet those sisters had some interesting times growing up together. As I think of my sister and I growing up together, we had some interesting times. <laughs> and I'm sure these two sisters did as well. So let's, let's take a look at the one main scene we see of Mary and Martha in the Bible. If you turn with me in the book of Luke chapter 10. It's only four verses, and yet this story is very packed, and obviously with just a few minutes, I'm just going to touch on a couple of the things that, that really touch me from this story. All right, Luke chapter 10, verses 38 to 41. It's entitled, At the Home of Mary and Martha. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, 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 the Lord answered. You are worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. And Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. I like this encounter for many reasons. But honestly, one of the main reasons that come to mind is I identify with Martha. I don't know if any of the rest of you out there have that kind of feeling. But for me, it's not something you're necessarily proud of, but it's something you feel inside. I identify with Martha because there's so much busyness in her life. There's stuff happening, distractions, worries, and cares. She's striving. She's working hard. She desires fairness. She wants to perform well. She wants to please. She's working hard. Martha. Identify with Martha. 
in my life, in the realities of life. That is life. But on the other hand, my heart desires to be like Mary. My heart says, oh, oh, to just sit at the feet of Jesus. Oh, to just rest, to love and be loved, to share my heart and have him share his heart, to be known, to know him and to be known, and just to experience his love, his great unconditional love, just to be still. There's that yin and that yang. Life, kind of as it is, life I want it to be and how I desire it to be. There's a book. I read this a couple years ago, and it really hit home. And so if any of you, if this topic hits home for you, I'd highly suggest it. I think we did in our women's group. It's been a few years ago now, but it's called Having a Merry Heart in a Martha World. And that really says it, having a merry heart in a Martha World. It's a great book, and it really kind of capsulizes that struggle that we have. And as we think of Martha, we think, okay, what's the issue? What's going on that she didn't take the opportunity? She didn't take that chance to sit at Jesus' feet. What were some of the things? Well, in just these few verses, it will give us just a few things. So let me show you. Um, If you look back on verse 40, look. Uh, chapter 10, verse 40. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. Busyness. Stuff. Life. Right? As, as my husband, as Chip would say, he says, do you ever experience the whiz-bang of life? Just going, okay? The going. Make the lunches, walk the dog, take the kids to school, wash the dishes, pay the bills, fix the lawnmower, make the dentist appointment, pick up the kids from school, wash the car, buy the groceries, fix the supper, do the laundry, go to the gym, help with homework, go to a committee meeting, cook food for potluck, prepare to teach the Sabbath school lesson. Oh, and don't forget to make a to-do list for tomorrow. Set an alarm and start all over the next day. Added a few more things from the to-do list, of course, for the next day. I mean, that's honest. That, that's, that's kind of life for some of us, especially for any of those who have personalities as a gold, as we've learned from Mr. Morris, if you were here for the personality testing. And unfortunately, or fortunately, I don't know, I try to figure that out sometimes, I'm a gold. So the to-do list and all the goings-on really gets going. The busyness of life and the distractions of life are not going to stop. You never get your in-basket done. You're never I, I, this, this book called Don't Sweat the Small Stuff, it has, that's one of the lines, that's one of the chapters that says, your inbox will still be full when you die. I mean, if that's what you're working to try to do is to get your inbox empty, you're not going to do it. You're not going to do it. So what's the answer? The answer comes in words of Jesus. Words of Jesus that say, be still and know that I am God. Come away and rest a while. We can't stop all this stuff, but we can choose to make time to stop and experience him. Don't let that busyness keep us in the kitchen like it did Martha. Stop. Take the opportunities that arise throughout your day. Connect with him so that he's that center amidst all the busyness, that he's that, that peace amidst all the storm, that you don't miss out on that. 
Be still and know that I am God. If you're not a gold, even if it's not the to-do list that distracts you from your relationship with God, if you're... If, you're a, if you know the colors, if you're a blue or a green or an orange, you have strengths and weaknesses that pull you away from God. Maybe it's not, the, like you said, the going-goingness, but maybe it's your hobbies. Maybe it's um, academically seeing God in the books, not in the relationship. And, and maybe it's, it's the orangeness of, ah, the fun things that are out there. But just to take that moment and be still and know that God is God. Don't let that stop you. Look at verse 41, another problem that stopped Martha from from really experiencing Jesus and sitting at his feet. In verse 41, it says, Martha, Jesus says, Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things. Worried and upset. Those are words we find a lot of us deal with. There's worry. There's worry. There's lots of things going on that are not right in this world. And I stop and think, Martha had a list of worries. Martha was upset with things going on. What were her what-ifs going on? What was she dealing with in life? What are we dealing with in life? What are our what-ifs? What are our worries? But here was the interesting thing I found really when I read this this time. Jesus already knew it. Jesus called her on her. He says, I know you, Martha, and you have lots of worries, and you're upset. That means God already knows what we're dealing with. He knows our struggles. He knows there's pain. He knows what we're going through. He knows that. And he's just asking us to take the time to come and set those down, to lay the burdens down. Spend the time with Jesus. Just sit at his feet. Come and rest a while. Lay your worries at his feet. Place them in his hands. And I love this. Place them in his hands. And remember, his hands are the nail-scarred hands. So when you place the worries in his hands, they're in the best care possible. Place your burdens in his arms of love. Lay them down. Don't let them stop you from taking the time with Jesus. Don't worry about anything, but in everything through prayer and thanksgiving, make your requests known to God and the peace which passes all understanding will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. One other thing, and this is a big one. It's almost hard to... For me to kind of, there's so many aspects of it. One other thing that it talks about in these verses that stopped Martha from having that connection at the feet of Jesus was herself. And and it says in verse 40, she came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care? My sister's left me to do all the work by myself. She was so concerned in her strivings for self, in her strivings for validation and value of herself. She was that busy one doing, doing. Why was she doing that? Because she wanted to feel validation. She wanted to know that, okay, I'm doing something. I'm making a difference. My value is in what I'm doing. She hadn't learned that her value in who she was as a daughter of God, not in what she was doing to please others or to try to gain God's favor. God doesn't ask that of us. He just says, come. Sit, rest, be still. If you relate to Martha, you probably relate to the second son in the, prod- in the parable of the prodigal son, the second brother. The one who stayed home and did everything right. You know, the one that didn't leave and go do all this stuff, and he was the one that stayed and did all was right. I relate to him. Ugh. But you know what? The problem is once you really realize what's going on, 
What was his problem? His problem is it was about himself. It wasn't about his relationship with his father. He had all that time to have great relationship with his father, and all he was worried about is what am I getting out of this? And has anybody seen what I'm sacrificing? It was about himself. It wasn't about relationship with God. What about the, uh, the rich, young, rich young ruler? He came to God. I've kept all the list. I've kept all the commandments. I've done everything, Lord. I've done it all right. What was the problem? What was the motive? Where was his heart? God says, you've done all these things. But he asked him something else. He asked him a matter of the heart. And he turned away. It was about the outside, whitewashed tombs that are dead on the inside. God wants to know about our heart. There's dangers becoming legalistic and self-righteous if you deal with a Martha personality. Dangers of seeing not only yourself but others. And you need to see others through the grace and the eyes of God. God's love is never earned. It is a gift given. It says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not by works, so that anyone can boast. Don't let pride, self, strivings come between sitting you and sitting at the feet of Jesus. In closing... This story ends with an interesting ending, and shall I say, a non-ending. I never thought about that before. He, he tells Mary, ah, she's chosen the best thing. Come, calm down, rest. What does, Mar- what does Martha do? What does Martha do? Does, does she roll her eyes and ah, go back to the kitchen, go back to her old ways, go back to her familiar self? Or... Does she stop? Does she have a teachable heart? Does she have a humble spirit? And does she finally realize what she needed to be doing was sitting at the feet of Jesus? I like to think that she chose at that moment to sit right down and just melt into the floor at Jesus' feet. It's our choice. It was her choice. It's our choice today. What do we do to keep those distractions at bay? Will we do the same? Will we fight the busyness and distractions? Will we take time to be still and know that he is God? Will we worry less and trust more, allowing him to be the peace that passes understanding? Will we rely on God more than ourselves? Will we allow his grace to define us, not our works to define us? And will we allow him to help us see others through the same eyes of grace? as he's helping us see ourselves. May we do good works because we know how much we are loved and valued, not in order to receive love and value. May we choose the better part, the relationship and experiencing the heart of Jesus. May we have a merry heart, M-A-R-Y, in a Martha world. May we choose to do whatever it takes to take the time to sit at the feet of Jesus. You know, uh, back in 1956, was it, who was born here? In, it was a long time ago. Uh, I was eight years old, and um, my mother, who was a very spiritual person, um, took me to a little town 
that had a theater, a little town called Mapleton, Iowa. I lived in a town that didn't, so if we went to the movies, we had to go to Mapleton. Now, I know Mapleton, Iowa probably seems like the far-off land of Midian to many of you, and it wasn't much, but it did have a theater. And she took me to a movie, um, which you're all familiar with, which is the Ten Commandments. And um, I watched that, sat through it, uh, like three or four hours. Without moving, I was totally overwhelmed, um, always gone to Sunday school and all of that, but it seemed like that particular movie had to an eight-year-old an overwhelming, uh, almost epiphany, you might say. And um, thus began a journey of where Moses always was somebody that I was always very interested in. And um, um, that's why this November uh, we're going to go to Sinai and climb Mount Sinai. So, and I'm training for it now. <laughs> but it's always been, he's always been a special person in Scripture. Um, of course, I was devastated to learn that Moses probably didn't look like Charlton Heston. <laughs> and for all those years, I thought, sure, it was Charlton Heston. And then the most devastating experience was that they really didn't split the Red Sea. That, in fact, it was a bowl of green jello. And um, using their special effects, they went down the green jello and split it open and photographed it. So the next time I saw the Ten Commandments, I looked for that green jello, and it was there. That was devastating, that they used green jello. But anyway, I, uh, from time to time, when it comes on, I'll, I'll watch it, you know. I never realized just how corny the dialogue is, but <laughs> it's still always fun to watch them split the green jello. And um, so Moses, Moses, he had a pretty good gig going, really. You know, he made that terrible mistake when he was 40 and killed the Egyptian thinking that perhaps he could begin the revolution and rescue the slaves, but he ended up going to a far-off Mapleton Midian, okay? And he had a pretty good gig. I mean, really, he married the boss's daughter, and he was out there for 40 years herding sheep. That's pretty comfortable, really, when you think about it. I mean, there's not a lot of worries. You just kind of get up in the morning, and you go out, and you... Um, take care of the sheep, and um, not not too bad. Until one day he saw a burning bush, and out of his curiosity he had to go see it because it wasn't consuming. So as he got close, he heard a voice say, Moses, Moses. I kind of know how he feels, you know, because sometimes I get phone calls on this little phone, and it says, Julio Tabuenca. <laughs> and I thought, I, well, I suddenly think of Paul Mugani's words. When he gets that phone call from Julio, before he answers, he looks, 
And he says, what am I going to say yes to today? <laughs> so that's sort of, uh, sort of how it was with Moses. And, you know, the Lord says, okay, Moses, you've been out here in Midian for 40 years. It's time to go back and do the job. Well, you know, him. Yeah, mean, no, I can't do this. I can't speak. I can't do this. I can't do that. And for every excuse that he made, God gave him an answer until finally he was cornered and said, okay. And so he left. And he went back to Egypt. And on, you know, the Lord told him, he said, now this isn't going to be easy. The Pharaoh isn't going to just give it up. You've got some experiences to go through. But Moses never realized the experiences. He got back to uh, the Nile Valley. And he thought that he would be well received when he went into the Pharaoh. And he told the Pharaoh, let my people go. Of course, he knew the Pharaoh wouldn't do it. But he thought at least the people would be happy. And the Pharaoh reacted and said, Oh, well, you've got to go out and get your own straw now, but you've got to keep the quota. And the people, the people who were enslaved started complaining about Moses. Can you imagine that? You know, Moses reminds me of Jesus. Jesus came from a pretty comfortable place. He could have stayed there in heaven and let us just be enslaved and eventually until we die out. I mean, that was a pretty comfortable place to be in. But because of his great love, he stepped off the throne, stepped out of his comfort zone and went to Egypt. He didn't come as a king. Paul tells us that he was as low as a slave until he finally went to the cross. That's one of the reasons why Moses is one of my favorite characters is because he reminds me of Jesus so much. And the fact that he reluctantly stepped out of his comfort zone and went to the howling wilderness of Egypt and rescued through God's power an ungrateful group of people. And then you remember the story of the golden calf, how he went up there for 40 days and 40 nights and he received the tablets and then the people got impatient and they started to play and they built the golden calf And is there any more lame excuse than his brother saying, I threw in this gold and out came this calf. I had nothing to do with it. (laughs) That deserves a slap in the face. Anyway, he came down and the Lord, you know, it was judgment upon them. But a little bit after that golden calf, the Lord said to Moses, he says, look, I've had enough of these people. I'm going to destroy them, and I'm going to take you and build a great nation. Now, you know, they were ungrateful in Egypt. They'd been a pain in the neck all along. Wouldn't it have been easy for Moses to say, 
You got it right. Let's do it. Moses didn't do that, did he? He said, look, Lord, there are weak people. I'll tell you what. Take me out of the book of life. Take my life, but spare them. Have you ever known anybody so devoted to a movement who would sacrifice his own life for an ungrateful people? And the Lord said to him, No, Moses, people die in their own sins. Do you know why I like Moses? Because he reminds me of Jesus. He's a type of Jesus. Because when Jesus came and died on the cross, it wasn't just a showcase. It wasn't just some demonstration where the conclusion was already made. When he hung on the cross and in those dark hours between 12 and 3, he could not see eternal life. But he chose to go ahead anyway and sacrifice his own life. You know another reason I like Moses? A little later on, I mean, this guy had been through a lot with these people. A little later on, they were whining and crying about not having enough water. And the Lord had already shown them that he could provide water anytime, place. But they started whining and crying again. And the Lord says, okay, Moses, go and speak to the rock. Don't hit it. Speak it. But he was just so built up with anger and frustration that instead of hitting the rock or speaking to the rock, he hit the rock twice. And then he said, oh, those terrible words. Must we get this water out of this rock for you? Now, you know, to a lot of people would say, well, that, that's not a bad thing to say. He just kind of lost it. After all, look what he'd been through. But to a leader of that magnitude, that was really something. And the Lord said, Moses, you took glory away from me because by glorifying me is the only way you get out of this place. And you took it to yourself. Moses, there's only one thing that I can do. You can't go in to the promised land. And you've got to understand, he had been in Midian 40 years. He had a good gig. He didn't even want to do this job. But he ended up doing the job and went through all kinds of headaches with these people. And then at the last moment, after all those years, he just lost it for a moment. And the Lord said, I'm taking away... Everything that you've ever dreamed about. Now, how would we react to that? You know, we would, you got to be kidding, just over that little thing. And the Bible tells us that he went back again and again and again. He said, Lord, please, please, Lord, let me go into the promised land. And then the Lord, at the end of it, even did something that even just seems like a little cruel. He takes him up to Mount Nebo and he says, take a look at all of this that you're not going to have. And finally the Lord said, Moses, no more. 
Don't ask me anymore about this. And Moses obeyed. And he never became bitter. You know, we have disappointments in life. Sometimes we don't get our dreams fulfilled, regardless of what the self-help people say. Sometimes we don't get the dreams fulfilled, and we become bitter. Or somebody dies, and we become bitter. Moses lost the prize of his life, and he never became bitter. I like that. It reminds me of Jesus, who when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, we're told that the separation between God and Christ was already beginning. And he said, he begged the Lord, he said, if there's another way. But he said, I'll submit to you anyway. I like that, don't you? And Christ died on the cross, and Christ was resurrected. And don't you know, that reminds me of Moses, who he went up on the mountain, and he died. And the Bible tells us that the Lord buried him. And to the eyes of the people, they were forever sorry for what they had pushed Moses to do. And in their minds, he's still buried there today. But we know what happened, don't we? The Lord said, All right, in the eyes of the people, he has been judged, but they don't know about what I'm about to do. And he says, Gabriel, let's go. Let's get down there to that mountain, and let's bring him back. And he's going to have a perfect view for the rest of the time that the plan of salvation fills out. Good job, Moses. Good job. Thank you, Richard, and thank you, Trina, and thank you, Lowell. Very nice, very nice. I wonder, is there anything in common between these personalities? David, Martha, Mary, and Moses. Think about it. It took me a while, and finally I was able to find the common denominator in their Parting words, final words. You find David, and we do, not ex- we do not know exactly what happened at the end of David's journey. We know that he had cold feet, and that a virgin was assigned to take care of that coldness. But there are not words from Moses, and not words from God, except that before he died, he called his son Solomon, and he entrusted to him the building of the temple. And then, in the fi- that's the final statement. Uh, I didn't find anything after that. He said to Solomon, be strong. And then he concluded the statement, and show yourself a man. Be strong. Show yourself as a man. Don't you love it? And then we have Martha and Mary. I'm going to start with Martha. And uh, by the way, I didn't ask the preachers during this series to preach about anybody. They selected the individuals. So every week it was a challenge to try to find things in common between these uh, individuals. 
And it's interesting because I didn't talk to Trina about how she was going to um, approach the subject. But the statement that I'm going to refer to is exactly the one that she emphasized. Martha, Martha. There is a little bit of frustration and there is a little bit of emphasis in the process. Whenever you find the name that is mentioned twice or more than twice, you know that he wants to make an important point. And the point is this. Yes, you tend to worry a lot about things. Mary has chosen that good part. In the NIV, it says the better part. And then he concluded with statement, and it will not be taken away from her. Remember this answer. You have taken the better or the good part, and it's not going to be taken away from you. How about Mary? I believe personally, and I think that I have uh, enough argument to show that Mary, from the Bible, is Mary Magdalene. It's a woman that was caught in adultery in the temple three years before. And Jesus pursued her sense of um, spirituality for three and a half years. Three and a half years. And you find uh, Mary Magdalene involved in circumstances that were less than desirable for a follower of Jesus Christ. And it comes to the very end, to the very end, when Jesus is going to ascend to heaven, and he postponed the encounter with his father just to encourage somebody who has a very tender uh, faith. Very, very tender. And then there is a dialogue. Mary is crying because she believes that somebody has stored the body of her friend, Jesus, from the tomb. And then he comes and she, in, with her tears, is, came to the conclusion that the man that is coming to her is the gardener. And then he says, why are you crying so much? And then she doesn't look at him. He is the gardener because somebody stole the body of my master. And then he switched from Hebrew to Aramaic. And he called him as only he would call Mary. Maria. Maria. And every time that I come to that moment in the, time, in the life of Mary, I remember how my wife calls me. We may be in a shopping center, which happens very seldom. We may be uh, with friends. We may be wherever. She doesn't call me by name. She just whistles. And it can be a hundred people. It can be a thousand people. I listen to that whistle, and I know where she is. And then I go, I go. <laughs> so there are, there are ways, there are ways to call those that you love, those that you care for. It can be a whistle, it can be a name, it can be your name, but in a very sweet way. I'm not going to tell you how she calls me when we are sweet. <laughs> um, and then he says, go and tell. Oh, I love that statement. Go and tell my brothers. Who are these brothers? These are the people who betray him, his beloved disciples. He told me that they were going to run away. So, oh, no, 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 no. 
They may run away. They may abandon you, but I'm going to be right there with you. And he's the one who betrayed him big time. And Jesus has no words of reproach. He calls them, my brothers, go and tell. Go and tell. Well, I have been asking myself what I'm going to tell. What are my final words to you? What were, were they will be? Uh, Moses, help me to define those words. Moses has two statements that I want to highlight to you. One of them is the song of Moses. And John the Revelator, in the book of Revelation, chapter 15, he says that that song is the one that we, we are going to be singing in heaven after we go through the millennium. Beautiful, beautiful song. And let me highlight just one statement of that song. For the Lord's portion is his people. Don't you love it? The Lord's portion is his people. It's so easy to forget that, particularly when you are discouraged. Particularly when you are aware of a mistake that you have done. This week, I spent considerable time with somebody who made the wrong choice. Martha was invited to do the right choice. And to my surprise, even though somebody told me that he would never come back to church and he would never reverse his ways, he came. And we had a most beautiful, loving, empowered conversation. Empowering conversation. And something happened. I told him this story. I told him the story of Mary Magdalene. I said, you are the portion, you are the apple of God's eye. In spite of what happened, there is nothing, there is absolutely nothing that you do that is going to separate you from the love of God. That love is tested. Yes, I test that love and, you, and so do you. But let me assure you, it doesn't matter the mistakes that we have done. You are still the portion of God's love. And for me, that is very, very reassuring. And the other statement, it comes almost immediately. It says, the eternal God is what? Your refuge. Did you find yourself sometimes in your life alone, completely alone, not knowing where to go, not knowing where to Share your agony and your sense of loneliness. I encourage you to go to God. He is your refuge. He is my refuge. You can go any time of the day or the night. You can go whenever you are in the darkest place. And he will listen to you. And he will be your refuge. And then he concludes the statement. And underneath are what? The everlasting arms of God. Did you watch on TV this week the story of that remarkable baby? He was born and died almost immediately. And they brought the baby to the mother just to say goodbye. He's already dead. And the mother started caressing him and kissing him and expressing her love as only a mother can. And the baby came back to life came back to life. A miracle, an expression of the grace of God. You may feel dead, 
And you may feel that you have fallen a thousand or a million down, uh, miles down. And there the arms of God embrace you. And he brings you. And he caresses you. And he kisses you. And he says, I love you. I love you. Many times we have been wondering how many people read the newsletter. And we have more or less come to the conclusion that it's a very small group of individuals until today. I realize that you do read the newsletter. <laughs> you read the first page and the second and apparently you read the fourth one. So you're wondering what is going to happen and what are going to be the final words that I'm going to be sharing with you in a few months. I remember the first words that I shared with you. I remember very distinctively Pastor Penick, who at that moment was the secretary of the conference, came with his wife and Alicia and I, and with the six individuals who were in the church, we were ten for Sabbath school. And I said to myself, there is plenty of work here. <laughs> and Pastor Penick counted those who were here, and there were 48 for worship service, 48. And then he challenged the church and he challenged me to do something about that. I preach about the Lamb of God. And I remember how we review the Lamb of God from Genesis to Revelation. And it was a blessed experience for me. And so I have been praying what I'm going to preach on January 29th. And I came to the conclusion that I'm going to preach about the Lion, Jesus, the Lion of Judah. The Lion of Judah. Why? Because I think that they represent two stages in the plan of salvation. The first one is the Lamb. It represents the moment when you and I accepted Christ as our personal Savior. And at that moment we were made aware at least partially, by the influence of the Holy Spirit, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, as to who Jesus is and what he has done for you and for me. That he paid for my sins. But the price was quite expensive. He was killed on the cross, a horrible death. And he representing the Lamb. The Lamb represents him. The Lamb of God dies on the cross. It's the first stage in the plan of salvation. There are three stages. Three stages. And the first one is to recognize Jesus as my Savior, to accept him as my Savior and the Lord of my life. Number two is sanctification. And that's when I find that the four personalities that uh, this good man and lady brought to our attention, represent that period of sanctification. And read carefully and think and keep these thoughts in your mind as you go through the process of sanctification. Martha, the first one, choose the right part. It's a choice, my brothers and sisters. We make the choice. We do not know what Martha did. I would like to think that what Trina believes is true. And I think it's true, and I, I, will, I hope it is true, that she agree to kneel right there and to spend time with the Lord Jesus. But it's not always, uh, it's not always easy. When you have temperament, 
A, character A. And you're always on the go, and I know a little bit about that. It's not always easy to stop and to take the time and to make the time to uh, meditate on Jesus Christ. So choose the right path, the right part. David, to his son, be strong in the Lord. And you will find the Apostle Paul in his letters, in the 14 letters that he wrote, including the book of Hebrews, if you believe that he wrote it, as I do, 128 times the Apostle Paul says, you should be in Christ. You should be in the Lord. You should be in Jesus. You should be in him. 128 times. David already said that. Be in Christ. Be in the Lord. Be in God. There is no substitute to that. Moses, you are the Lord's portion. Never forget that. When people tell me I don't believe in God, I said, describe that God to me. And when they do, I said, I wouldn't believe in that God either. The God that I love is this. And then I tell them one story from the Bible, many times the story of Mary Magdalene. You are the special portion of God. He also said, the Lord is your what? Your strength and your refuge. Your strength and your refuge. And Mary, Mary Magdalene, remember what Jesus ordered her to do. Commanded her to do. Go and tell. That's the part that sometimes we tend to forget. We keep that to ourselves and we don't share the good news of the gospel. Well, the last part. First is salvation. Second is sanctification. And the third one is glorification. And glorification will happen when Jesus comes back, not just as the Lamb of God to die for us, but he will come back as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Let's be prepared. Let's be ready. And let's these lives and these statements and these thoughts be part of your life and mine.